Our scripture reading this morning, as John mentioned, is going to be from Psalm chapter 32, verses 6 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which may be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Paul, for reading scripture for us and, um, and for welcoming us this morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and especially if this is your first time, I just want to say thank you so much for coming and, uh, and joining us this morning, celebrating worship with us. Uh, on some Sundays where we have holidays or fifth Sundays of the month, we invite our elementary school students uh, to join us in the service, and we are delighted whenever uh, elementary school students are with us here in the service. But I just wanted to remind you, this is something we offer every single week. It's called the Kid Connect. Um, it's designed for students to help uh, kids and students to follow along with the sermon. So if you didn't pick up one of these, I think there's some more in the back, and you can grab them. It's a resource that our team puts together um, specifically based on, on the sermon. So if you you are an elementary school student up here this morning, we'd love to have you follow along uh, with one of these. Well, as we take a look at this passage, uh, Psalm 32, John mentioned earlier that we've been in a Psalms series learning how the Psalms teach us to pray, how they give uh, words and voice and, and models for us in prayer. And so the first week we looked at Psalms 1 and 2 as sort of a gateway into prayer. And last week we looked at uh, morning and evening prayer, these rhythms. And then uh, this morning we're looking at a moment of, of and a key element of prayer, and that's confession. And so as we prepare to do that, I would love to begin with prayer and asking for God's help to learn how to pray as we read this text together and look at it. So, Father in heaven, we're thankful that you have given us the Psalms um, as the prayer book uh, for your people, the prayer book that Jesus used during his time on earth, um, that your people throughout the New Testament and, and beyond to today have used, that these are the words, these words of the Psalms are prayed by literally millions upon millions of people um, throughout history and, and around the world. So thank you for inviting us into this conversation of prayer, this chorus of prayer. And we ask by the power of your spirit now that you would uh, guide and direct us in understanding um, what you would teach us and where you're working. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a great story uh, told of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories, that uh, he anonymously sent a note to sort of just 12 random a prominent uh, gentleman in London. And, and the telegram simply said six words, and they were these, flee at once, all is discovered. And the story then goes that these, all of these men immediately packed up and left the city. 
Um, now, this is probably an apocryphal story. I don't know if this is actually a true story. It's also attributed to Mark Twain doing something similar. But I suspect that it touches a chord uh, with us because we all have something, right, in our, in our life, if we were to get a note like that, that we, that we don't want someone to know, that there's something we hope people don't find out about us. And the recent uh, hack of the Ashley Madison website user database reveals this. And the pain and the shame of the exposure that happened there has crippled thousands and thousands of lives, of careers, families, relationships. And, and, and as widespread as that was, odds are that some of you here sitting this morning have, have been affected by that in some way, either yourself being on that list or knowing someone who has. And, and let me just say, if that is true, if that's your story this morning, know that, that we are here to help and there is hope in that. But, but it doesn't have to be something as public as that, does it? I mean, maybe it's cheating on a test at school. Or, or lying about a friend to, to make yourself look better, or a coworker, Or maybe it's, it's flirting at the office that's begun to go too far, or sort of stretching, massaging, lying about sales figures or quarterly earning reports to make things look better to leaders or investors. And we all have something in our lives that, that we're not proud of, that we want to hide and we all need somewhere to hide. We all need somewhere to hide. And yet, while we all fear being exposed and fully known at the same time, we also have a deep longing within us for that very thing, to be truly known, to not hide, to have someone to know us and, and accept us and understand us for who we are. And the difficulty is that that kind of intimacy involves vulnerability, and, and vulnerability produces intimacy, but vulnerability of that kind, it's really hard. And this is true not only in our relationship with one another, but it's true in our relationship with God as well, that how do we move to a place of, of vulnerability when our impulse is always to hide? And the thing is, is that we, we often neglect a key resource that makes this kind of vulnerability and intimacy possible, both in our relationships with one another as well as in our relationship with God, and that's the, the resource of confession. So why is it that we so often hesitate to confess? Why is it so often, for our, often absent from our prayer lives? I was recently convicted of this just thinking through this message of we're teaching our daughter Lucy, who will be two years old in December, we're teaching her how to pray. And I realized as I was preparing this sermon that Lucy never hears me confess. When we pray, she hears me thank God for things. She hears me ask God for things. But rarely ever do I say, God, I'm sorry for the ways that I haven't loved you today or that I've disobeyed you. So I've begun to try to work that in with her. As, as, as we thank God for what he's given us, as we ask him for the things that we need, am I modeling confession for her? And so, but why is that? Why do I not just intuitively include that as part of my rhythms of prayer with her and, and teaching her to pray? I think there are probably a lot of reasons, but Miroslav Volf, who's a theologian at uh, Yale Divinity School and directs the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, I was reading some of his work this week, and it was really helpful to me as I reflected on this question of why isn't this more part of our lives. He has an absolutely outstanding book called Free of Charge, and I would encourage you to pick it up sometime, especially if you're questioning, how do I forgive someone who's really hurt me? Free of Charge is a phenomenal book. 
And he says that Western Christians, and maybe Western people in general, tend to think of themselves as God's favorites who can do no wrong. As soon as I read that, I kind of thought, actually, immediately I would want to reject that of myself, but I think deep down I often think that's true. We, We tend to think of ourselves as God's favorites who can do no wrong. We think that we're basically good, that we may have some tidying up to do in certain areas, or I'm sure we're not perfect, but there isn't anything really deeply wrong with us. Osseville says we tend to think that our private spheres, so especially like our emotions, our desires, our thoughts, are nobody else's business, not even God's. That our thoughts, our feelings, are only a problem if they become actions that hurt other people. But as long as they just remain within us, they're no one else's business. And then finally, Wolf points out that we believe that we should be affirmed no matter what. And so he kind of pulls us all together and he says that what we have then is a good God who just gives us all that we want and need and affirms all of our deeds. And he says such, God, such a God is basically a divine version of a doting grandparent. And the thing is, we just don't confess to doting grandparents. And, and if that's fundamentally our view of God, we're not going to confess in prayer. And I was convicted how many of those elements sort of slowly just creep in because it's part of the background of, of our culture into my own approach and thinking about who God is. And these slowly erode our ability, though, to have a real relationship with God and with one another. And in the end, it leads us to hide, right? Imagine if I told Rachel that that my thoughts, my feelings, my desires, they're none of your business, and I want you to affirm me in everything that I do, (laughs) no matter what. I mean, our relationship is going to quickly erode. So confession in prayer is what allows us to get beyond this, to actually name the wrongs and find a way to move forward. If there's one thing that Psalm 32 reveals to us, and we've heard portions of that read this morning, is that we all need somewhere to hide. We all need somewhere to hide. And as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see that that confession reveals what we're hiding, the pain of hiding, and then finally the hope in hiding. So confession and prayer, when we, when we make this discipline of confession a part of our prayer, if we find that it reveals what we're hiding, it, it shows us the pain of hiding, and then it also demonstrates the hope we have in hiding. And so first, in verses 1 and 2, you see that what we're hiding. Listen to those verses again. It says, Blessed is the ones whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man or the person against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And when you read those verses or hear those verses read, I think two things tend to stand out to us that that maybe seem a bit old-fashioned or that we're not used to hearing. The first one is this idea of of blessing or, or blessedness. It's not really a language that we use a lot besides maybe when someone sneezes. And Lucy started picking up. She always says, bless, bless, whenever Rachel sneezes with her allergies. But but apart from that, we don't use this language of blessing, but we see it comes up regularly in the Psalms. It's been in every message that we've had in this series so far. The notion of blessedness has come up. And and it's really a term that, that means it's a picture of joy and happiness and comprehensive well-being. So that's this idea of blessedness. But second, probably what stood out to you more than that language was 
there's this language in these first couple of verses that seems like it's right at home in kind of the time of Nathaniel Hawthorne in the Scarlet Letter, right? This language of transgression, of sin, of iniquity. And these are the things that the psalm says we're hiding. But it's at this point that some of you are probably tempted to, to check out and say, look, I mean, transgression, iniquity, really, Bill? I mean, there's reason, Bill, those words sound out of date. They are. I mean, can't we finally just kind of get beyond this kind of puritanical obsession with sins? And, and honestly, I'm with you. As I read the psalm, it was like the hardest thing I have to do, the work to do in this, this message is to help us understand what these words mean and what they're all about. Because just to say the words transgression and iniquity just sounds old-fashioned. It's like, wait, were we in the 1700s here? And yet David Brooks, uh, the author, New York Times columnist, he's not a Christian, um, in a recent interview points out that, that we need these words. The interviewer commented, and he said, David, you note that since roughly World War II, we live in a different moral country. And, and he asked David, why is this? And his response to the interviewer is fascinating. He says, most people believe the big cultural shift happened in the 1960s. But when I investigated the books and culture of the late 1940s, I found the transformation happened then. There were tons of best-selling books and some movies arguing that the notion of human sinfulness was outdated and that we should embrace the idea that we are really wonderful. And then he continued to say, when you lose the awareness of sin, again, Brooks is not a Christian, and start thinking that deep down human beings are pretty wonderful, you lose the struggle of character building. And building character, he says, is not like being better than someone else at a career. It's conquering your own weakness. He says, but you won't make that effort if you lose your sense of where your weakness is from and, and what it is. See, the problem for many of us is that when we hear this language of sin, we just don't have an imagination around how this concept could be anything other than, than harmful and repressive. And that comes from a place of reality, right? That concept of sin has often been abused to be harmful and repressive. But Brooks thinks that this concept of sin, it has a necessary place in our lives. He says it's a, a part of our mental furniture that we need, we need to reclaim. And in his book, The Road to Character, he defines sin this way. Again, this is David Brooks. He says, sin is our perverse tendency to, to mess things up. He uses a little stronger language there. To favor the short term over the long term, to lower the high, to favor the lower over the higher. Sin is when is committed over and over again, hardens into loyalty to a lower love. A loyalty to a lower love. And he says, the danger of sin, in other words, is that it feeds on itself. Small moral compromises on Monday make you more likely to commit other bigger moral compromises on Tuesday. And when we then turn to the, the pages of the Bible, what we find is that the notion of sin is even far richer and multifaceted than, than Brooks framing here. In fact, there are three words alone for sin used in these first couple of verses. And, and oftentimes in poetry, you get different kinds of words and, and variety of words just for poetic variety. These, these psalms are, are poetry. But here in this case, it actually is a moment of, of giving us greater insight into how sin works. Each one of these words gives us a window into a different facet of this thing that we call sin. The first word that's used is transgression. And this, this language actually refers to rebellion. And so if you read through the, the Old Testament, 
This word often gets translated as rebellion in the books that kind of describe Israel's political history. Although in the ancient Near East, you can't really divide political and religious history, but in those books that describe the kings and their roles. So, for example, in 2 Kings, the, the book of 2 Kings begins this way. It says, after the death of Moab, he was one of the kings, or after the death of Ahab, excuse me, he was one of the kings, the nation of, of Moab rebelled against Israel. So this is the same word that's translated transgression here. It's this picture of rebellion. So in the context of the psalm, transgression means an act which breaks relationship with the community and with God, an act that breaks relationship with community, with the community and with God. And this is fundamental to understanding what is really at the back of, what's really at the heart of this notion of sin. Because we tend to think of sin, first and foremost, often as, as the breaking of a rule, right? So if you're, this has happened, actually, as I was writing my sermon, they were running traffic enforce, enforcement out here on Warnell Road, so the police motorcycle would come around our little driveway and hide here and then pull people over. So we tend to think about sin as breaking the law, right? The speed limit is posted at 35 miles an hour, you're going 45, you get a ticket. But you're not really personally offending the police officer, you're just breaking an ordinance of Kansas City that sets the speed of this road. But see, the heart of sin is first and foremost the breaking of a relationship. It's much more like adultery than it is getting a speeding ticket. It's a betrayal. It's a rejection of a relationship. It's looking at the one who has made us, who loves us, staring at him in the face and saying, I don't want anything to do with you. And I'm going to do whatever I want. You see, sin always shatters a relationship before it breaks the law. But sin is also law-breaking. And that's at the core of, of the word that's actually translated sin here. That's the second word. Here the idea is, is falling short of God's, wall, of God's law, not, uh, not doing, failing to, to do all that's required of us. And this is where sin gets kind of the sticky concept as well. It's not just things that we do. It's, it's failing to do the things that we ought to do. There can be sins of omission as well. That, that there are these things that we are supposed to do, people we're supposed to help, and we didn't do. And then finally, there's this language of iniquity. And it translates this idea of, of guilt and the consequences that stain us when we're caught up in this rebellion and this law-breaking. I think Shakespeare uh, in the play Macbeth captures the idea of iniquity well. Lady Macbeth, if you remember in the play, she's walking around the camp castle wringing her hands as she kind of sleepwalks and saying, out, damn spot, out. She imagines these stains of blood on her hands that she can't get out because of the murders, the crimes that she's been a part of. That's the picture of iniquity. It's the spot that no matter how hard we scrub, we can't get it out. And, and all three of these facets of sin are, are present in Genesis chapter 3, which is this first moment when sin enters humanity. Adam and Eve, they eat from this tree which God had commanded them not to eat. And Again, what first and foremost is happening there is a rebellion against God. It's a rejection of Him. I mean, clearly there is the breaking of a command, but in breaking that command, they're, they're first saying, God, we don't, we don't trust you, we don't believe you anymore. And it leads to this indelible stain of, of shame and guilt. 
And so they hide. They cover. Now listen to what Adam says to God in Genesis 3 after they sinned. He said, I heard the sound of you, God, walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We all need a place to hide. Adam and Eve hid from God and from one another, and we've been hiding ever since. So we, we scramble, we blame, we, we try to manage it and spin it, but all of this scrambling, it exhausts us, and it, it makes us miserable. And this is what we see in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32. We see the pain that comes of hiding, the pain of hiding our sin. Uh, David says in verses 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, our attempt to hide sin, it does three things. It, it deepens our inner turmoil. This is that idea of groaning all day long, that there's this constant sort of ruminating over it. Uh, second, it, it delays the inevitable. This is, God's hand is heavy on us. There's, it will be found out, and we're just delaying the inevitability that it will come to light. And it diminishes our strength. We, we waste away like someone in the desert or like someone trying to do yard work yesterday. It was miserable outside. Um, rather than confessing our sin to God in prayer that he might cover it completely, we so often choose to try to cover it ourselves. As Christians, we often subscribe more to what Dallas Willard, a philosopher at USC, called the gospel of sin management, rather than confession and repentance that leads to fr true freedom and joy and change in our lives. See, we either we can cover up sin and eventually have the covers of that sin blown off, we can ask God to cover our sins and find forgiveness and healing. So we mentioned the Scarlet Letter earlier. If you've read that book recently, maybe some of you high school students are in the process of reading that for a class this year. It's a classic. But Hawthorne vividly depicts the pain and the cost of unconfessed sin on both the sinner and the one who sinned against, right, in that story of Hester and all that she suffers. And of the preacher in that story, Hawthorne writes, and this is such a powerful statement, no man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be true. I wonder how many of us has felt that. See, sin is a fungus, and it gr grows in the dark. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor and theologian during World War II in Germany, who was ultimately uh, martyred at the hands of Hitler, he captures so well the isolating nature of sin um, in his, one of his writings on community. He says, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disaster this is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In darkness, the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of the person. 
See, not only does the the foolishness of remaining silent about our sin allow it to fester and grow, but it, it robs us of the joy of the blessing that we receive when we take hold of God's mercy. You see, down at the end of the psalm in verse 10, it says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. That line has been resonating in, in my mind throughout the week, kind of reverberating it. Many are the sorrows of the wicked that so often we think that that, that path promises hope and life, and yet it's such a sorrowful path. A 17th century pastor, Thomas Brooks, says this, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow upon the soul by yielding to sin and hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing. You see, we know that hiding our sin is a bad idea, and it will only create more problems. And there, even in the, the psalm seems to imply that there can be some level of physical ramifications for remaining silent about our sin, that, that sin doesn't have this just a spiritual or moral component, but that actually physically, emotionally, we're, we're whole people. We can't just kind of segment off these parts of ourselves. David says in his silence, he, he feels the hand of God heavy on him, that there's an awareness of his, his bones feel like they're wasting away. It causes him to lose strength, to groan. His, his health and vitality change and they're diminished. And again, not, not all illness and disease and physical misfortune are the result of sin, but David seems to indicate that sometimes there is, that sometimes that's a factor. And Edgar Allan Poe, who wrote so many dark and disturbing stories, I think better than any other writer captures the relentlessness, the misery, the sorrows of unconfessed sin. You remember the telltale heart? That story? I, mean, the, I went back and read it again this week. It's probably 500 words, but it's so powerful. The, the narrator of the story, it's written in kind of this first-person narrative. He's killed a man and hidden his body in the floor, Remember? And the police arrive, and because he's cleaned everything up, they don't suspect anything. And so we're going to pick up the story. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted about familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached. And I fancied a ringing in my ears, but still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness until at length I found the noise was not within my ears. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted presently and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no, they heard. They suspected. They knew They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear the hypocritical smiles no more. I felt I must scream or die. And now again, hark louder, 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 louder. Isn't that great? It just brings you in, groaning, bones wasting away crushing heaviness, endless 
multiplication of sorrows. This is the pain of hiding. But there's hope. There's hope in the hiding. And that hope-shaped door in the midst of hiding is confession. First to God in prayer, and that's our focus today, but also to brothers and sisters in the community as well. And listen to David's prayer in verses 3 and 4, and then we'll pick it up in verse 5. He says, For when I kept silence, my bone wasted away. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. But then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You see, only the forgiven are truly happy. And we may be able to distract ourselves from a time from, from these things that, that burden our conscience, our heart, by, by reading or, or going shopping or buying things or with TV or movies or hobbies. But in the end, no amount of those can help us deal with guilt and shame and grief that comes from knowing what we have done and, and knowing deep down who we are. There's nothing better in life than being forgiven. This is what the truly good life looks like. When it talks about blessedness at the beginning, it's a life marked by forgiveness. And we get there through confession and repentance. You see, the pathway to the good life is not through moral perfection or spiritual piety. Rather, it begins by recognizing and confessing our sin. Augustine, the great theologian and really a foundational thinker in Western thought altogether, he loved Psalm 32. And he said, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. And, and one of my favorite things about the psalm is it actually helps us get clarity around some biblical categories that tend to trip us up. Because notice when you read through the psalm, it talks about the blessed person. And then you kind of go on to read the other language that it uses of the person who has a blessed life. And it's language like godly, righteous, upright in heart, one in whose there's no deceit. And when I read those categories and you read this language of righteousness all over the, the Old Testament, and it's like, I, my first thought is to be like, I don't fit in that category. Like, I don't feel righteous at all. And at one level, that's a good thing. We ought to feel that. But at another level, it, it demonstrates a misunderstanding that we have about who fits into the group that's called the righteous. Because the one who is righteous is not a sinless person. Rather, it is a person who has been forgiven on the basis of God's mercy. The righteous are not simply those who are perfect in their obedience. In this psalm, we see that the righteous and blessed people are those who recognize their sin and confess their sin and trust God to cover it. You see, the condition for righteousness is not sinlessness. It's trust. It's not righteousness. It's, it's not sinlessness. It's, it's trust. Trust in the God who has promised to forgive you, make you whole, to make you one who doesn't have deceit or unrighteousness or sin. 
And you notice in verse 5, those, those three words that we looked at in the first point of transgression and sin and iniquity, they come back again in verse 5. And what I love about verse 5 is it shows that, that each one of those three facets of sin were given in the first part actually is met with a unique part of God's forgiveness. Because God's, he forgives, he covers, and he, he doesn't count our sin against us. I love how, how Mirsaw Wolf in that book, Free of Charge, defines what sin is or excuse me, what, what forgiveness is. He says, to forgive is to condemn the fault but spare the doer. That's what the forgiving God does. Forgiveness is to condemn the fault but spare the doer. And this is how forgiveness is actually radically different than excusing. So often we just want God to excuse us, but, but here's how they're different. Excusing is what happens if I'm driving to a meeting and my car breaks down and I, and I call and say, hey, I, I'm going to be late for the meeting and I'm not going to make it because my car broke down. In that moment, my coworkers don't say, Bill, we forgive you. Oh, they say, oh man, we, we understand, no problem. It makes sense. Your car's broken down and you can't get here. You see, Forgiveness deals with the inexcusable, those things for which there is no excuse. You see, God doesn't look at our sin and say, oh, I understand, no big deal. No, he looks at our sin and condemns it as wrong, but then because of his mercy spares us, the doers, from what we deserve. And this is actually even the power of forgiveness in the context of relationships, because if you've been wronged by someone, forgiving them doesn't mean saying they didn't hurt you. It means saying you're not going to hold them to the penalty of that. You're not going to make them pay. There's a lot there. That's a whole other sermon. <laughs> so he forgives us. Second, he, he covers us. This is the imagery from the Day of Atonement, this holiday that Jews today even still celebrate, Yom Kippur, when, when the blood of a sacrificial animal is sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant as a sign of the covering of sin. And then he counts our iniquity. He doesn't count us against us anymore. Our sins are removed from God's leisure. It's like we've racked up this massive credit card debt of sin that we could never repay and God has, has paid it. He no longer counts those charges against us. And, and here's the thing. All of this then leads to joy. Because at the end of the psalm, David says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love of the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You see, confession leads to forgiveness, and forgiveness leads to joy in and praise of God. And this is what makes Christianity so unique. This is what makes the gospel so unique. Is that the godly, the people who the gospel really has gotten into their life, they aren't, they aren't dour, long-faced people who are always obsessing over sin and guilt and shame. And they're joyful, forgiven people who are able to let go of the sin that God has forgiven. David Brooks, again, who's not a Christian, uh, talks about this reality of Christians in, in that same interview. And I thought this was fascinating. He says, I spend a lot of time going to Israel. And he says, Christian art there has a certain face. He says, when you walk the stations of the cross, you enter different chapels from different traditions, Greek, Orthodox, Catholic. But the art features the same facial expression. 
one of gentle, loving kindness. He says in Greek or Roman art, the expressions are much harder and less grace-filled. But the Christian art has a kind of joy-filled humility. You see, that's what confession and forgiveness yield in the life of a Christian. A joy-filled humility. Covering our own sin is not the pathway to the good life. If we try to be our own hiding place, we will be exposed. But we all need somewhere to hide. And the good news is that we don't have to be our own hiding place. We don't have to cover our own shame. Jesus is our ultimate hiding place. To to be a Christian is to say of Jesus what, what David says in Psalm 32, verse 7, that you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. We don't have to cover our sin because Jesus has covered our sin for us. We don't need to hide because Jesus in Christ has become our hiding place. We don't need to remain in the sorrow of our wickedness because in Christ we're surrounded with steadfast love. He is the hiding place that we need. We all need a hiding place. We all need somewhere to hide. Don't be that for yourself. Run to Jesus. Hide in him. Let's pray. Father, your word says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And we come to you this morning pleading only Christ. Christ.